please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's passage will be in Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. In the Bibles around the room, that's on page 944. And at the end of my reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll reply, thanks be to God. And we say this in acknowledgement that we believe that this is his word breathed out. So Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager, with eager longing for the, revel, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in the hope we were saved, now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. In our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings for too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask you to open our hearts and our ears to what you need us to hear today. We ask you to lift up Pastor Kyle as he preaches. Amen. Thank you, Shelby. Well, good morning, church. My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors. If you're a guest with us, welcome to Living Stones. If you're somebody who is kind of new to uh, the church or you know, you're investigating Christianity. Uh, welcome to this church. This is a place where you can investigate God. It's a place where we're going to open up the Bible. You can see what it, it's going to say. And uh, there, there might be a few things that happen today in the service that might feel like a little weird to you, like everybody standing and singing together. Uh, that might not be something that you do only in the shower by yourself, maybe. But um, the reason we do that is God's people have always given praise to God. And one of the ways that is natural, humanity naturally gives praise is by singing. And so that's what we're doing. And uh, those songs that we sing are also prayers to God. And so in singing to God, we're praying. And, and if you're a Christian, let me remind you that you're not here watching a band perform. This isn't a concert. Uh, we are joining the angels in heaven. The band is simply here to, to help us because we know, Lord, help us if we try to lead ourselves. The band is simply here to help us so that we're all singing to God. And that's what this is about, okay? Um, Romans 8 is where we find ourselves today. If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 944 in the Bibles we set around the room. Romans 8. This is a passage of glory. Reminds me, when I was a little kid, I forget how old I was. I should ask my mom and dad who are sitting right over here, 10 or 12 or something. I remember we went to Disneyland, and um, I remember, the, the thing I remember most about Disneyland was this one ride, Indiana Jones. And it was the, it was the year that it came out, and so uh, it was all the rage. And 
uh, I think we stood in line for over an hour, you know, maybe even longer, just, just to go on this ride. I don't even remember because the ride was just so awesome. And um, I remember going on it, and the next day we just ran back to the park and went on it a couple times, tried to get there before everybody else did. But you see, we were willing to wait the hours in line because we knew that the ride was going to be so awesome. It's amazing what you can go through when your eyes are set on the goodness to come. And once you realize that goodness, you look back on the suffering and and you don't even remember how bad the suffering was because the goodness is so good. And what Paul is doing in this section that, that he's writing right here is he's saying there is a glory that is to come that is far greater than the worst suffering that anybody could possibly experience in this earth. And if we set our minds on that glory, it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. Um, that's the big idea for the text. Pastor Gavin came up with it. He ran into my office. He said, I know your big idea for the text this week. It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. So we're going to talk about the reason for the wait. We're going to talk about the posture of our waiting and also the comfort in the wait. The glory to come is worth the wait. Paul starts in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So first thing, he just, he doesn't mess around. He's not trying to pull punches. He says, we're in suffering right now. Anybody say amen? Amen. We're in suffering. But the sufferings that we're in are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let's back the thing up a little bit to verse 17. And in verse 17, Paul says that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. What this is saying, it's, it's the beautiful good news of the gospel. That through belief in Jesus and simple belief in Jesus, you become a child of God. And as a child of God, God is storing up an inheritance for you. Now this inheritance will be realized by you if you suffer with Christ. Every human will suffer. Some Christians have thought, oh, I have to suffer with Christ. I got to beat myself and make myself suffer. No, you just have to be a human to suffer. But only some will suffer with Christ. And those who suffer with Christ, God is storing up glory for you. And the glory that is to come far outweighs the suffering that is here. And so the reason we wait is because we know that the glory is going to be way better. In fact, Paul says in 18 that he he considers the sufferings that we're facing not even worth comparing. And what he's doing here is he's using a a language, accounting language of a scale. In the marketplace, they would compare, when you would weigh something out, you would compare it on a scale. And what he's saying is that the weight or the burden of your suffering is not worth comparing to the weight of God's glory. Like God's glory, when it comes here, is gonna be so great that suffering is gonna be a distant memory. So if you're new to the Bible, what you need to know is that the Bible is written by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years, and, and it tells one overarching story. And the overarching story starts with God creating everything in beauty and in glory and declaring it very good. 
And he creates humans as the pinnacle of his creation. But then after he created everything, humans quickly rebelled against God and they broke his commands, which the Bible calls sin. And upon breaking God's commands, sin entered the world and fractured everything. It's kind of like if you're sitting by a still pond. If you've ever done that or a still lake, you can kind of see the beautiful reflection of the trees and the mountains and your face. And it looks awesome. Some people's faces, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> but you, you just, it's, it's beautiful when you can sit next to that glass pond. But then imagine that somebody comes and throws a boulder into the glass pond. And then the ripples affect everything. So the creation that seems so pure seems fractured. And your image seems distorted. That's what sin does. It affects everything. Everything is distorted by sin. But shortly after human sin, God makes a promise that he's going to send a redeemer and this redeemer is going to come and he's going to deal with this root problem of sin. And that person we find out as we read the Bible is Jesus. And Jesus comes and in his first coming, he deals with the consequence of sin, which the Bible says is death, which is why we see our Lord hanging on a cross. And then he deals with the power of sin. Sin has weighed us down and and holds us in bondage. But in Jesus, he defeated the power of sin because he never sinned once in his entire life on your behalf. And then he also resurrected from the grave, conquering the power of death. And then he sent his church out into the world to tell everybody this good news of Jesus. And he promises that one day he's going to return again. You read about that at the end of the Bible. And at that point, he's going to renew all things so there will be no more sin at all. So we live in between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And we look forward to the time when he's going to renew the heavens and the earth and get rid of the presence of sin altogether. The saints, when they would greet each other, they would say the phrase Maranatha because it means come quickly, Lord. Let's say that together. Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this this glory that is to come when Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he's going to bring heaven to earth. Heaven is not a place. The ultimate end of heaven is not a place where people just float around as spirits. Or baby angels wearing diapers, playing harps. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is a place of complete renewal. Where God is going to renew all of creation. Think of the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. It scratches the surface of what's going to come in heaven. The best food you've ever eaten doesn't even compare to the food that the Lord himself will serve us at the table. Complete renewal. Broken hearts set right. Broken relationships restored. Broken psyches made perfect. People with disabilities walking. There will be no more eating disorders. No more fear. No more shame. No more hospitals. Because God is going to set all things right. It'll be complete deliverance when his glory comes. He will deliver you from the sin that is in your own heart. You know, one of the things that Paul is talking about in suffering is in chapter 7, he's talking about a lot of our suffering, especially as Christians, is just battling with our own sin, our own messed up heart. But there will be a day when the Lord returns where you won't have sin in your heart any longer. It'll be gone. The only thing that will be in your heart is a desire for the Lord, and he will be right there. 
And then you'll be delivered from the sin of others. Hallelujah. People won't hurt you any longer. There'll be no more gossip, no more slander, no more abuse, no more rape, no more perversion. There'll be no more pride or arrogance or condemnation of self-righteousness. All of that will be gone on the day that the Lord returns. And it'll be a time when his presence is actually with us. You know the highlight when the Bible ever talks about heaven? You know what the highlight of heaven is? It's the, the, the authors always say, behold, the Lord will be there. Your soul won't have to doubt God any longer. You won't wonder what he thinks or what he looks like or how he is because he'll be right there. And somehow, all who believe in him will have access to him at that moment. That's where I'm going to be. If you want to find me in heaven, I'll be right by Jesus, praising him. I told my son a couple weeks ago, I'm like, yeah, dinosaurs will probably be in heaven. We'll probably be riding dinosaurs with Jesus in heaven. <laughs> but it's a, it's, a, it's a place of unimaginable peace. Um, the Hebrew word for this heaven that is to come is the, the word shalom, where everything is as it ought to be. Meaning that your soul will no longer have shame or insecurities or fear or guilt or wondering if you've done good enough or wondering where you stand because all things will be set right. That is this glory that is to come, Maranatha. And so what Paul is getting at is that the present sufferings, there is real suffering, are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. It's like women in childbirth. Women in labor say a lot of crazy things. <laughs> what did you do to me? What gave you the right... Who do you think you are? You're sleeping on the couch. I'm never doing this again. But when you hold your baby, the pains of pregnancy, the pains of labor, they don't even compare to the glory of the child that you're holding. When you watch your kid grow up and ride a bike for the first time, when you watch them graduate high school, when you see them become responsible adult and have children of their own, that life far outweighs the suffering of your pregnancy. And that's what Paul is getting at. There is real suffering, but it, will not, it does not compare to the glory that is coming. And so he's saying this because of this. Listen to me, church. Because we all have a tendency in the midst of hard times to get our eyes on ourselves. And he says, get your eyes on the glory that is to come. It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. And it's not only us who are waiting, but all of creation waits. Paul says this in verse 19. He says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, you know, creation, we, we can know that this is true because just look at creation. We know that creation is not right. Something is broken within creation. And creation didn't choose that for itself. God subjected creation. When he, when he put Adam as the king of humanity and Adam sinned, God allowed that all of that sin and corruption would go to all that was in Adam's kingdom, which means all of creation. But he did it in hope that one day he would come and restore creation. It says that all of creation has been subjected to futility. 
Another word for that is meaninglessness or frustration. Even creation is frustrated because of sin. Which makes you wonder, man, if you're not frustrated of your sin, you need to be paying attention. (laughs) Even creation is frustrated. Even creation knows that this isn't how it ought to be. I wonder if Paul has in mind things like earthquakes and tsunamis and famines and plagues and wildfires. He says that creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. He says that right there in the next verse where we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of this, this, these earthquakes, these fires, these groanings are, are, are creation saying this isn't right but something good is to come. Something good is to come. And then he goes on and he says, but it's not only creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait for adoption as son, the redemption's The redemption of our bodies. He says, now look at creation. Clearly creation is groaning and preparing for something. But so are we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. If you are a Christian, God has given you his Holy Spirit. Now what that means is this, that God is a trinity. He's one God who eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, as God's Son... God sent Jesus to come and die for our sins. Jesus did that, then he resurrected. Then Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that we could have his spirit within us to empower us in this life and to cleanse us from our sins. And so God's spirit lives in you if you are a Christian. And what Paul is saying is that if you're a Christian, we've tasted the first fruits of God and his glory. Do you know what a first fruit is? It's a farming analogy for the first part of your crop that says there's more to come. It's like, uh, or you can think of it like an appetizer. When I, I, I've been getting into barbecuing and I love to cook a good piece of meat and one of my favorite things is being the first person to cut that little edge off while everybody's getting all ready for dinner and to taste that first little edge of meat. That would be the first fruit. There's only one bad thing with the first fruit. That when you taste it, you want more. But you have to wait. So when I cut that little piece of meat and I put it in my mouth and it's juicy, I'm like, oh man, this is so awesome. I just want to eat the whole thing right now. Screw everybody else. Like, we're eating right now. But, you know, everybody's like, no, we got to get the vegetables and the salad and you rally everybody and you have to wait. And there's a little bit of a torture going on in your heart as you're waiting because you know how good it is and what's to come. And as a Christian, this is a description of our life. By receiving the Holy Spirit, we've tasted a bit of God's goodness and we know that more is to come, but in the meantime, we have to wait. And so we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It says we're waiting for our full adoption. Now, if you were paying attention last week, it says in last week's message that, uh, that we have already been adopted by God. So if you say, wait, I've already been adopted, how come I'm still waiting for adoption? And here's what Paul is getting at. In Roman adoption, a person would adopt somebody into their family for the sole purpose of giving them their name and giving them their inheritance. Oftentimes, 
uh, Roman adoptive children would have a better relationship with their adoptive dad than biological children because they were more grateful for what their adoptive dad had given them. But that adoption wouldn't be fully realized until they actually obtained the inheritance. And so what he's saying is you have been adopted by God. He is your father. But you will, this will be fully realized when you inherit glory from him when he returns. It will fully be declared to the whole world that these are the children of God. And that's what we wait eagerly. And it says we wait eagerly for this because then we're going to have the redemption of our bodies. Now, anybody who has an aching body, say amen. amen. No more back pain. No more knee pain. No more getting sick. No more having loved ones be on life support. No more eyes going bad. No more children having disabilities. No more dementia. It's all going to be gone. Because we're going to have renewed bodies. And then Paul says, into this hope we were saved. We were saved with the hope of a resurrection. Not some ethereal enlightenment. We were saved to be resurrected just as Jesus resurrected and is in a glorified body. That is the hope of the Christian. Now we might say, now that is weird and I can't believe that. Renewed bodies, resurrected in heaven with ever for God? That's just too weird for me. But doesn't your longings testify that this is true? Doesn't the cravings of your heart testify that this is true? I mean, think about it. Does anybody get excited when they get sick? We hate getting sick. Introverts do because they're like, now I don't have to talk to people. <laughs> but truly, we hate, like, we hate getting sick. We hate death. We know that death is coming. Newsflash, every one of us in here is going to die. But it seems like every time somebody dies, it takes us by surprise and we hate it. Why? Because built into our psyche is an ancient memory of Eden. A craving for heaven. A craving to never die. Because we know deep down in our hearts that death isn't natural. That sickness isn't natural. That we were made to be with God forever. And there's no such thing for cravings for something that doesn't actually exist. Last night I craved some uh, ice cream because I know that ice cream exists. You only have cravings for things that your soul knows exist. And we crave this, this life that, that will not pass because it exists. It's coming for those who are in Christ. And this is the redemption that we look forward to. And so we groan eagerly as we wait. And so what Paul is saying to us here is this. In all of your suffering, you need to make suffering your servant. You need to make suffering your servant that reminds you that this is just labor pains. And you need to get your eyes set on glory. So when somebody you love dies, what you need to say yourself is labor pains. When somebody gets cancer, labor pains. When there's hatred and division at work, labor pains. When there's conflict in your family, labor pains. When you struggle at battling your own sin and you hate it, labor pains. Something better is to come. Get your eyes on the glory because it's worth the wait. 
So how do we wait? What's the posture of our wait? Paul says in the next verses, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees, but if we hope in what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. He's saying we're setting our eyes on this hope to come. So what is the posture of our waiting? It's eagerly looking in hope. Eagerly waiting in patience. Hope. What is hope? Hope is wishing for something that you don't yet have. So Paul says, now who hopes for what they see? Like nobody owns a home and is standing in their home, looking at their home saying, man, I really wish I had a home. Because you're in it. You only hope for things you don't yet have. I wish I would win a lottery. But Christian hope is different than worldly hope. Because Christian hope is more than just a a big wish. Christian hope is a confident expectation that God will do based on what he has done. Christian hope looks back at all of God's faithfulness in the past and says, God has been so faithful, I know that he's going to fulfill what is coming in the future. So I'm confidently looking forward to it. Christian hope pays attention to the signs at hand and says, I am looking forward because these are birth pangs that something is coming. That's Christian hope. And I want you to notice that he shows us the posture of this by mentioning this phrase a few times. He says the word eagerly. In the first part of the paragraph, he says that creation waits with eager longing. And then he goes down a little further and he says, not only creation, but we who have the spirit, we wait eagerly. And at the end, he says, we wait for it with patience, which in the original language, it's the same phrase. We wait eagerly. It's, it's a patient, persevering waiting. Imagine being at a parade and you hear the parade coming and it's coming down and you rush to the line and you stand on your tippy toes to see that's what this is talking about. You're, it, it, the, the language has this connotation of standing on your toes and craning your head to see what is coming. And this is the posture of a Christian. The Christian life should be marked by looking for and living for the glory that is to come. We're we're standing on our tippy toes and we're saying, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And not only that, we do this in community. It says we wait for it with patience. It doesn't say you as individuals. Paul in this whole section is talking plurally. He's saying we wait for it with patience. And it's like this. When you're standing at a parade and there's a little kid who can't see, what do you do with that little kid? You pick him up and you put him on your shoulders so that they can see too. And this is the call of the church. That we together are to be gathering and helping and spurning each other on to see the glory of God because the world wants to blind us from it. So let me ask you, church. Let me ask you, Christians. If somebody were to describe your life, would they say, yeah, I don't know. That person just seems to live for the glory of God. This is our call. And we're called to do it together as a community. And I really have sensed this week that I need to speak tenderly as your pastor in a gentle exhortation to us on this point. And I want to do it by age group. So first of all, if you're a kid in this room, if you are... Um, if you're an elementary student, you're, you're high school, maybe early college, there are so many things in your little life that are going to want your full attention. School, fitting in with the cool kids, 
um, sports. And although a lot of those things can be good things, they're not worth living for. And so I tell you, if you're a kid in here, I tell you, like, don't grow up because just living for those things because there's going to be a day when you're my age and you're going to look back and you're going to wish that you lived more for God and less for friends and less for the acceptance of other people. When I was a little kid I, and in high school, I lived for sports. I, I, I found my identity in football. But there's a day when football ends <laughs> and you have to ask yourself, who am I apart from this? I also found my identity in, in trying to fit in. I had a serious FOMO, fear of missing out. <laughs> and I look back and I say, I wish I would have spent more time focusing on God and his beauty and his glory. And so kids, I just want you to, don't grow up not focusing on God. The next category of people I'd like to speak to is those who are in your late 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe early 50s. And you're in the process of life where you're building a career, you're raising a family. And the thing I think that's threatening you focusing on glory is busyness. And our culture craves it. If you're not busy, you're not important, is what our culture says. And I fear that in the busyness of trying to raise your kids right and in the busyness of trying to make so much money and build your career and trying to live in this neighborhood and also trying to do all these vacations that the glory of God will become an afterthought to you. And there will be a day, God forbid we pass in this time and Jesus looks at us and says, I really wasn't worth your time. So my call to you in that age category is don't let busyness overshadow the glory of God. And then um, for those of you who are our older generation, the gray hairs or the no hairs for a lot of you. <laughs> I've heard in this church a lot of talk that goes like this. It's, it's believing in American dream. And you have to know that the American dream is different than the biblical dream for humanity. The American dream says you work hard, you do your job, then you retire, and you sit on your butt, and then you travel. And there in this church, I've heard this from a lot of our older generation, language that goes like this. You kids are doing a great job. You just keep doing it. I don't really want to get involved because I'm going to sit back and watch you guys. I did my time. And some of you are like in your 50s saying this. I'm like, you got 30 years left. Don't, Jesus did not die on the cross and resurrect for you to sit back on your butt and travel, which is a fun thing, but to, to live your life for lesser glories. Wouldn't it be better to be the old person going down, glorifying God? Like Simeon in the temple that we read about who glorified Jesus. And, and so my request to you, if you are one of the older saints in our room, is to reinvigorate yourself. There's no retiring from Christianity. <laughs> and my request to you is that you would be like the guy, the dad at a parade, who's picking up the other kids so that they can see the glory too. 
and here's the thing, is we all need to do this together. Don't, th- and this only happens in relationships. So don't wait for the church to start a program so all of you guys can start hanging out. You're at church, look around you, tap somebody on the shoulder and say, let's become friends. And let's look for the glory of God together. And some of you who, especially who are in the older generation, you're saying, I'm hoping that younger people will come and ask me. I'm telling you, they're not going to. (laughs) They won't. Pastor Shea knows. The millennial generation grew up without parents. And they grew up in broken families. They don't even know how to ask. Older people, it's on you to tap somebody on the shoulder and say, let's go out to lunch. And they don't, the younger people don't need another dad or another mom. They need a friend. And here's the weird thing about discipleship is a lot of times you set your heart out to disciple somebody and they end up discipling you. <laughs> and, and then younger people, you're like, my life is so crazy. I just wish I had older people in my life speaking into it, but nobody wants, go ask them. <laughs> and then when you go out with, to lunch with them, shut your mouth. And listen. Just ask questions and listen. And let's be a church that is helping each other look for the glory that is to come. And imagine if we did this. If we actually helped each other do this. Man, people would be flocking to Jesus because the world is groaning for glory and we got it. So let's help. Let's help each other. We can't do this on our own and we're not alone. Which leads me to my last point. The comfort... Of this weight is that we are not alone. God is with us. Look at what it says. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The God of the Bible is the God who helps weak people. It's not, many say, you know what the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. It never says that. The Bible says God helps those who can't help themselves. He helps us in our weakness. And he says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Anybody ever been there? Okay, God, I'm ready to pray. You know, I don't know what to pray. Well, you don't have to worry. Especially in times of suffering, a lot of times in the middle of hard times, we don't know what to pray. But the good news is, is that the Spirit himself is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Like the Spirit's like, I got you covered. I know what's going on in your heart, and I know the mind of God in heaven. I got you covered. And then it says right after, and he who searches hearts, that's God the Father, knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to the will of God. So what this means is that God is praying for you if you're a Christian. He's interceding. He's the go-between. And God, the Father is always answering yes to the Spirit's prayers for you. Because the Spirit is praying according to the will of God. Jesus in his ministry said, uh, anybody who asks for anything in my name, you will receive it. Now, that doesn't mean that if you add in Jesus' name as some sort of incantation to your prayers. Like, I want a Ferrari in Jesus' name. (laughs) Boom! That's not going to happen. In the name of someone means according to their character, 
according to their will, according to their desires. And only the Spirit fully knows the character, will, and desires of God. And the good news of the gospel is that while you are suffering and waiting for the glory to come, the Spirit is praying on your behalf according to the will, character, and desires of God. And God is always answering those prayers, yes. You're not alone. You're not alone, church. And you say, well, it says that he intercedes on behalf of the saints. I ain't no saint. Well, yes, you are if you're a Christian. The Catholic Church has twisted the idea of what a saint is. They think that you have to have so many miracles and all this. No, a saint is somebody who's been set apart by Jesus and forgiven by Jesus. That's all a saint is. We're all saints if you're believing in Christ. You're a saint. And God is with you. So when the devil comes at you and says, look at you, you're alone. Nobody cares. You're by yourself. You're abandoned. You need to look the devil right back in the eye and say, no, I'm not. The spirit of God is with me. And when the devil says, you don't even know how to pray. How can God be with you? You say, yeah, but the spirit is praying on my behalf. Listen, devil, you're alone because God is with me. We're, We're not alone. And that's the comfort. And listen, many of you, are depressed, you're hurting, you're aching, and you feel alone. And I'm here to tell you, you're not. God is with you. His spirit is with you. Um, you know, Paul is finishing up a thought here in Romans 8 that he started in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, he says, for uh, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And here he says, while we're weak, the Spirit prays for us. You see, this is the character of God. We can trust that God is with us because Christ has already demonstrated God's faithfulness to us. While we were weak. He didn't wait for you to get your act together. He died while you were weak. While you were still ungodly, he died for you. And the mark of those who are in Christ are those who have God's Spirit. And the hope of God's Spirit is that glory is coming And the comfort of God's spirit is that you're not alone. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in the 1800s, who faced a lot of suffering. Sometimes he would go through months of depression at a time that his elders would have to ask him to go on leave for three months at a time. Uh, He would work really, really hard. Um, He preached to crowds of over 10,000. He would work 18-hour days. He often, um, he he ran an orphanage and a college and he he mobilized hundreds of missionaries. And he he just was also had this ongoing internal struggle. And so when somebody asked him, how is it that you do all this in the midst of all this struggle without even really thinking too much, he just said, you forget, there's two of us. (laughs) I'm not alone. And neither are you, Christian. You're not alone. And if you think you're alone, the call is to remember the cross. We need to look back to God's faithfulness to look forward to his glory and be reminded of his current comfort. But if you're not a Christian, you are alone. But you don't have to be. If you feel like these words are getting at your heart and there's truth in these words, it's because God is beckoning you to respond to him. And he's saying, I want to be with you and I want to help you. You don't have to be alone. And all you have to do to receive God is just say, God, I'm a sinner and I want to receive you. And I ask you to do that right now. Don't wait. Don't wait.
God is with us. Okay, church? So it's worth the wait. As we wait for the glory to come, we don't wait by ourselves. We wait together and we wait by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you have given us your spirit. Thank you that there is a glory that's coming, as Tolkien says, where all the sad things will become untrue. That's the day that we look forward to. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we selfishly set our mind on our own brokenness without looking forward to the hope that's to come. Forgive us for the ways that we've been living selfishly and not spurning each other on to looking for this glory. And help us, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.